Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm your co-host, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This episode, we feature editor and poet John Freeman with three writers with roots in the Balkans on the theme change through the specific lens of language and translation. It was originally broadcast as a podcast exclusive as part of the 2021 Portland Book Festival. The 2022 Portland Book Festival is on November 5th in downtown Portland. More info at literary-arts.org. If you've been to Portland Book Festival, or maybe heard some of our events on past episodes here, I hope you've had the chance to see or hear John Freeman in action. Arguably the busiest man in book publishing, he is not only executive editor at the venerable Knopf Books, but in the past couple years, he has edited the Penguin Book of the Modern American Short Story, as well as an anthology of resistance writing co-edited with Tracy K. Smith, and he has a new book of his own poetry, Wind Trees, publishing this month, and he edits his own literary annual, Freeman's. John took some time away from his 10 jobs to speak with three Freeman's contributors with links to Bosnia and the Balkans about language and the way language changes through generations, geography, and translation. We'll join French author and translator Jakuta Alikovazovic, Yugoslav-born writer Lana Bostasic, and Bosnian-American novelist and memoirist Alexander Heyman, who co-wrote the new Matrix Resurrections movie with David Mitchell, fun fact. These writers came together from all over the world, New York, Barcelona, and Paris, for an illuminating and often hilarious discussion about the transmutable borders of language. Let's join Jakuta, Lana, Sasha, and John. My first question is for Jakuta. Um, you write in French. You also obviously speak Bosnian. Um, I wonder what the, the language of Bosnian means to you as a writer versus uh, you know, as an individual. Um, hi, John. Thanks. Um, that's an interesting question. That's really the almost the mother of all questions for me as a writer, as a French writer. Um, writing in French, I was born in Paris to a Bosnian mother and Montenegrin father, as you as you mentioned. Of course, back then, in the when they first arrived in Paris in the early seventies, they were both Yugoslavian. Um, and these distinctions didn't quite apply as much, but um, I was born at the at the very end of the of the seventies in Paris. My parents decided to bring me up in Bosnian, Serbo-Croatian, uh, and Bosnian. So um, it is by definition my mother tongue. And the funny thing is, I realized the other well, not quite the other day because I wrote about it, but. Um, I realized that in French, my father is only eight years older than me. And so we don't have a father-daughter relationship in French. We couldn't have that. We're friends, we're, um, we have a sort of a brotherly relationship in French, perhaps. Uh, he's my father in Serbo-Croatian, in Bosnian. Um, and not to say I'm a feral child of uh, French, but I sort of learned French. Um, or imbibed it from growing up in France, from going to school um, in in France, from you know just just being born and, and living here, so that I have this um, I have it's almost a fantasy that I'm I'm I self uh, I self created myself in French, and um, I'm fully a, a French writer that way. Uh, this being said, what do I do with Bosnian, which still is my mother tongue? 
it's an interesting question. And I think that, um, you know, strange things will happen. I will take um, idioms or figurative expressions in Bosnian, such as um, which means um, he's, you know, he, he's also uh, worked up, who starts working up and turn them into real literal scenes in French. One of the earliest short, short stories I wrote in French starts with a guy, you know, just, you know, foaming blood at the mouth and someone saying, you know, it must be your ulcer. And it definitely comes from the figurative expression, which I mentioned. It's um, quite interesting because the piece that you've written for the change issue of Freeman's revolves around an idiomatic uh, turn of phrase that you sort of, you hold in your hand and it, 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 it's about sort of keeping something back in your pocket. And, and I want to pause here in our conversation and bring in Lana. Lana, is, it, does the way that um, Yakuta just spoke about um, idioms and language, does it ring true? Is it something that you're doing deliberately or do you find that you just do it instinctually when you, when you write fiction? Yeah, um, it, it's, it's a great question, John. And I really liked what Yakuta was saying. Um, there's, there's this distance, I guess, between you and your mother tongue when also you spend some time in, a, in another language and then you start seeing it differently. Maybe some things that normally you, would, you wouldn't even notice. Um, you, you start looking at it like this object, like this thing and start thinking about it and playing with it. Uh, I mean, my story is different because I didn't grow up somewhere else. Uh, I grew up in that language that used to be called Serbo-Croatian. And when I was growing up in my town, we called it Serbian and I was Bosnian. But I do like to, um, to stop and think where words come from. And I think when you translate, it wasn't until I moved somewhere else and started translating some of these idioms that I realized how brutal some of them are. Jokes, things we say to children every day. Once I translated them to my to my former partner into Catalan or Spanish, I was like, oh my God, I, until now, I, I did not realize that this is what we say to kids. Um, so I, I do have this relationship um, with language. I think we have to have it as, as writers. We have to be aware that it's not just this direct transparent thing that we use to communicate something, but the thing itself is doing something. So. To me, I see it as my material and, and it's fun. When it comes to language, I really get fixated on something and I can't let go until I see it from each side. Why is it that we say this? But um, I, yeah, I tried to incorporate that in the, um, the short story collection precisely because it's the world of children and they're just bombarded with these expressions and idioms and, and they're using them to form their sense of identity without questioning these these words uh, they start telling stories of themselves uh, having only this tool so in this way I've, I found it interesting too Sasha your most recent book this does not belong to you and my parents an introduction which is a sort of flip book of uh, autobiographical writing the, the shorter of the books takes place in Sarajevo and it's your turning over memories that begin I think when you're around eight or nine years old around the age of some of Lana's characters um, up until a certain, maybe 13, 12. Uh, do you want to talk about what it's like to go back to experiences which existed uh, or were imprinted on you in another language and what happens to your 
English language, which is the language you're writing in, when you're retrieving them, what sort of what process of, of translation is happening? Yes, I do not want to talk about it, but also I want to um, respond a bit to what Yakuta and, and Lana were saying um, in relation to language. And um, as you can hear, we're all bilingual, right? And that is, um, however we arrive at the second language or the first language indeed, um, it creates a mode of mental operation, I think, and as they say, studies have shown that um, that shape the, the mind a little differently, right? And so that um, one quickly, and I, I started working in English late in my life, in my 20s, right? And so I, I wasn't bilingual growing up like Yakuta. Um, and I'm not writing in my native language like Lana. So there are these differences in our situations and positions. But I think what as, as a, an important aspect and part of diasporic experience all across the world in many languages in many countries is being bilingual or multilingual or bicultural or multicultural in the sense of having access to several seemingly separate spaces simultaneously. And I think that shapes a consciousness, right, in many various ways, but it shapes a consciousness in the sense that um, the way I think about it, an additional dimension is added. I would think that any writer, even if writing their native language, even being monolingual, are particularly alert to language and are prone to, you know, flipping phrases and words in their head in various ways. The, the words and sentences in language is material. It's the same thing that you touch every day, right? And so that is the case, or at least it is common among many writers in any languages, but if you are bilingual or multilingual, multicultural, suddenly there are those objects, those words have an extra, at least one extra dimension. Uh, and that dimension is, well, it's exciting, right? And it, one flips words or phrases in their heads as a matter of, well, I do, I don't know if everyone does, all the time, because it is never settled. It is never self-evident after a certain point why certain things are said or uh, uh, written. And so I know that I uh, have gone through kind of the process of translating idioms from one language to another. And my sister and I have this perpetual joke of translating Bosnian idioms into English or the other way around and the way that our parents say into English and so on. And, and including confronting the horrible idioms. I was, Lana was speaking, I, I remember, and as you all know, it, 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 I don't know if it's common now because things have happened, but before the, the last war, it was common to say that children sleep peacefully as if their throats were cut. My mother would say things like this. And th because idioms are um, in common usage, they're sort of empty. They're so familiar that no one thinks about their background, what they really mean. And I had this epiphanic moment in English sometime in the 90s and when in fact children's throats were cut in Bosnia, I suddenly realized, oh God, this is what we've been saying all along, right? And obviously some kind of historic memory or common practice, sadly, is inscribed in, the, in that idiom. And so that language and idioms acquire this reality that is that becomes indelible. You do not forget about the reality, right? And this is an asset to writer, but it also means, at least for me, that I'm constantly alert to those things. It, it is what Lana was saying, the sort of obsessiveness about language and things, because it's never, it can never recede into background, it never becomes transparent. It's never just tapestry on the wall. It is this thing that we have in our hands and have to deal with every way.
So to go back to your original question regarding this doesn't belong to you, um, one of the things that interested me in writing that is precisely this, the sort of the emergence of meaning in language, if you wish, right? To, to operate efficiently in a society or in any kind of social situation, we have to defend the language, we have to empty it of meaning a little. We don't want ambiguity and, you know, you don't want to go shopping and ask for a shirt in rhyme couplets. That would be a little crazy. And so that to make language functional, it has to be stripped of layers, right? So that we just get to the point. Um, and that also starts in childhood, right? We just use language function. And so to go back to that period of my life, there were other reasons why that interests me. But it was also addressing the way that language worked. What is the meaning of these words? And of course, each of us as persons and as writers <clears throat> can trace back history of our own language decisions, right, to some point in the past, which is why childhood is so interesting to writers. It's not just nostalgia, but it's tracing how did I learn this language? Or how did I learn to use language? Not necessarily language as particular language, but how did I learn to use language? This starts. And not as a um, really functional tool, right? But as this medium of self-expression, as this um, shell in which we exist in the world as writers, as in person. Yakucha, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, I'm curious if um, your parents had Yugoslav idioms uh, in in their um, language of Serbo-Croatian, which have, in some ways, um, marked your mother tongue. Um, in a timeliness, it basically frozen your Bosnian and at a, at a at a certain time, and if when you meet people, you know we met once with Sasha in Paris, if if you are in some ways always time traveling, um, as a result of of your language. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a very interesting point, John. Thanks. Um, yeah, just to just to follow up on on what Sasha said. Um, it's extremely strange how one one cliche, I mean, a cliche in one language can become a nightmare in another, right? That's how the best horror stories are written, perhaps. Um, and yes, as to time traveling, that's 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 extremely interesting. You know, I I was um, hung up about it as a kid growing up because you know I I I speak decent uh, Bosnian. Um, more more than functional, I think, but um, it's time traveling in a number of ways. It's time traveling because my parents' idioms are, to some extent, frozen in the in the early seventies uh, because they haven't, you know, been living the the Bosnian life um, ever since. Although we we went there and traveled, uh, oftentimes, etc. Um, so for me, it's very strange. I'm sure. I'm sure that at some points. Um, you know, someone wondered about this little kid speaking in oldish um, Bosnian. I, I, I'm sure I wondered about that. I'm sure I had many hangups about that growing up. And the other thing is, which is actually something I'm, I've grown rather fond of, is it's time traveling or being frozen in time in another way, because um, it's a language I mostly, mostly speak with family, with close family my parents, my relatives. Um, so it's um, it's truly a language of affection for me and of family ties and of being a child. And I'm forever a child in Bosnian, uh, which I'm not in French or in English. So it's, um, it's, it, it's, it's strange and I'm, I'm fine of that. I'm, I'm fine with it and I'm fond of it. 
But you know, Sasha was telling about the, the benefits of being raised bilingual and everything that's come to light. It wasn't so in the in the eighties as I was growing up. And I remember my parents, you know, told me stories and all our immigrant friends or, you know, immigrant for, from um, countries that were perceived as poorer countries um, tell they were systematically being discouraged of raising their kids bilingual. And some of them didn't agree to that and still thought it, was, it would be a good idea and a nice thing, you know, to have and share with their, with their foreign born children. But um, it absolutely wasn't uh, perceived as positively as it is today. So that's one thing. And the other thing I wanted to say that evades me, oh yes, um, bilingualism or, or multilingualism. Also, the price to pay, as Sasha said, is relativity. Everything becomes sort of relative. Everything becomes shifting a little bit. Um, everything that should be real and firm um, has a dark side in another language. You know, you know that there's two or three words in one language for the one word in this language, etc. So it sort of diffracts reality, but it also sort of enhances your personality. And I'm sure you all agree, Sasha and Lana, that, you know, we don't have exactly the same personality in all of our languages. Um, you know, I'm a child in Bosnian, which means I'm affectionate. I get angry a lot in Bosnian, um, not so much in French, even less so in English. I decided to learn English when, when I was in my teens. It was like, it was a third way for me. It was a way of, of dealing with the, with the tension, the ine inevitable tension of being raised um, biculturally. So I decided, you know, to have with it, I'm going to learn English. This seems like the safest way of, you know, being able to travel and being able to discover the world and do whatever I want to do by myself. English is a language I'm probably more independent in than any of my other languages, which means I fall in love uh, in a very interesting way in English, much more interesting than in French. Bosnian I can deep fry in, is the language I can deep fry in. <laughs> so, you know, every language has a, a little specialty. Lana, you, you're in Barcelona right now, and I, I presume you speak a little bit of Spanish. Um, do you notice that, you, that there's emotional valences to the different languages that you speak and that um, moving between them, you're playing a kind of uh, what we would call three card Monty with your with your heart. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I'm I actually started studying Spanish when I was 15 or 16. So when I arrived here, I was already um, quite fluent. But then it wasn't a real thing until I did something with it and formed relationships in it. And then there was another language here, which is Catalan. And of course, I had to learn that, too. Um, and it's funny uh, what Yakuta was saying. It's precisely this, because um, the other day, uh, my friends were uh, calling me to go out uh, to a party. And a friend of mine said, please make sure you bring the Spanish Lana <laughs> for some reason that's that, that that's they perceive it as the more fun me and of course it has to do with language it's, I guess since I learned it um, later on I just felt free to play in it to make mistakes in it to not take myself too, too seriously in it um, so definitely there's there's a thing except I stopped since I travel a lot I stopped seeing languages as something that begins exactly here and ends exactly here. 
because you know you move you move through Croatia, you go to Istria, and suddenly you see this this mix between Italian and Croatian, and you see where languages merge and become something else. So the, there's no clean cut between them, and I've started seeing all of this as this one language on a spectrum, and and then you know you can go between maybe. Latin and old Slavic or, you know, and now I'm talking about Europe. So, so I've, I've started using these languages in this way, especially Romance languages um, to like finding myself this, where it is, is it closer to French, like Catalan, or Italian or Spanish. So it's, it's a lot of fun, but I do feel on one hand, I feel like I have, I have more tools to express myself. But on the other hand, at the same time, I, I read an article with people who speak multiple languages sometimes have the problem of finding the right word at the right time because your brain has so many ways that it can go uh, and then you can be completely frozen and then actually not be able to speak I don't know if it I'm curious if it happens to to Sasha and Yakuta as well um, so so yeah and also you you are more aware of the fact that this is just a, it's just this changing thing it's not you know people who only I guess speak their native tongue just see that like that's this is like I, I, I speak truth in this I you know I this is when I say this I mean it you don't know but when you speak more languages you realize how relative it all is so um you, you stop taking yourself too seriously or language I guess for me it's just it's just this game and um and it has definitely been helpful um with writing because because uh, then I can there's some Spanish idioms that I really love that don't exist in my language and I'm trying to incorporate them. Um, of course, some of the things in Basia I love. What, sorry. What what would be one of the Spanish idioms that you've recently fallen in love with, where you think, God, I I really want to smuggle this back to Paris I, or I don't know, there's so many things. I mean, now to think of one, I love how they say. Um, taste is like color like you cannot judge a person for on their taste because there are as many tastes as their colors i mean they have all these things it's also very scatological <laughs> all of their swear words are about picking a which i found really funny whereas in bosnia it's mostly about copulating <laughs> so you can also see like different kind of things that that they find um i don't know outrageous to talk about um, and what Yakuta was saying was really interesting because when I was in Zurich in Switzerland, I met a lot of children of immigrants, Bosnian immigrants. And then there was a, a 20, 20 something year old journalist, Bosnian, born of Bosnian parents, but Swiss. And he was interviewing me in Bosnian and he sounded exactly like my grandpa. <laughs> so it was a, it was a 20 year old man with this kind of language. So it was a, a time traveling moment, um, as you said. And it was also the moment when I realized how many words in my language come from German. And then you could hear the Austrian occupation, <laughs> Austro-Hungarian occupation of my country. Like you can, you can hear which words these are, and you can hear all the words in the household where I guess the maid would be Bosnian, <laughs> you know, cleaning things. And then maybe the Austrian landlord would say, you know, please, you know, clean the rug, uh, okay, we have that word. Or like open the windows so, so we get a bit of luft, you know? So all of these things, like you can, you can hear class. And then I started 
being aware of also, you know, a bigger language coming in and occupying um, a smaller one. And I, I've, I had a similar experience when I was last in Sarajevo, walking along the river and watching the history of the occupation, um, you know, from the mountains, sort of as you get towards the university and the bookstore, you sort of watch the, the various occupations exist. But Sasha, you're, you're in the middle of writing several books, um, which one of them is, is called How Did You Get Here, which is a series of uh, interviews and oral histories with uh, Bosnian immigrants around the world. And I've been with you in some of these locations in Tokyo, for example, where you're looking out at an audience and suddenly you, you see the, uh, someone standing in the back who's obviously Bosnian. And I, I wonder if when you encounter people wherever you are, if, if the second they start speaking to you, if, if, they're, if they are not just placed locationally, but also dated temporarily in terms of when they left. Well, I mean, yes, but it's, it's extremely interesting conversation in so many ways. And, and it's, uh, as I don't know, it's Alana and Yakuta have a similar experience but it's really hard to explain these things to people who are not bilingual and have not had some kind of diasporic experience. And the way I describe it to myself and others is that, um, you know, in a, in a, in a two-dimensional projection, a multi-dimensional object only has two dimensions, right? However complex it is in multi-dimensional system. And so people who have, do not have uh, a multilingual brain, whatever the history of arriving at that kind of consciousness is, people who don't have that, they only see the simple aspects of it, right? And so the complexity of the mind, which is both good and bad, as, as Lana and Yakuta were pointing out, it gets really tricky to find the word because there's so many of them, but also there's so many of them. Um, it is hard to understand that. And so yeah, I always have a sense that I have to simplify that linguistic situation for people to explain it to people who do not speak several or write in several languages, right? And so here I am at home in Bosnian diaspora, effectively, because it's a condition of our life. And because different languages are tied to different parts of our life, right? And different experiences, different aspects of our life is this layering of, of linguistic mind that is organized in different languages, right? Whatever languages we might be speaking, but that is the case within a single language too, right? So that, I don't know, the language that I speak with my friends when I play cards where we curse each other and, you know, do trash talk is entirely different from a language that we might use to, I don't know, talk to elderly people and dress them politely and don't use certain words. And I want to present myself as a, you know, a nicely raised child and all that. And so each language has different registers that we can cover, provided that we are socially mobile enough, situationally speaking, right? That we're not only talking to the same group of people our entire life. So if you if you university educated in your language, whatever it is, you have a range of possibilities. You can talk, I can talk like a street thug, right? With people I grew up with, and then I can talk with professors, right? And so because language always comes out of an experience, but a diasporic experience is organized in categories of language. And so this is why we might have different personalities in different languages, but we also have different personalities in, in different registers of the same language, right? I sound like a thug when I speak to my friends and I sound like a nice boy when I speak to elderly people, right? I can do it, I can do it both. I can fake it either way. And so what, what this positionality, right? Let's call it diasporic, is conducive to is is moving toward greater complexity, right? That and, and that's 
as Yaku is pointing out, that's both a good thing and a bad thing, that because constantly, it's really hard to work every day just to sort out all the thoughts in various languages and speak to various people in various languages and explain yourself in various languages to various people. Right? It really is, it, in other words, in such a situation, no one is self-evident. The advantage of a nationalist monolingual monocultural um, social order is that people are self-evident. This is the dream of Trumpists and various kinds of fascists. A social situation, cultural situation where you understand everyone with that culture, right? Because it's simple and easy and you are self-evident. So if the French are French, Americans are Americans, everyone speaks one language, no complexities, no dual identities, no performative aspects to language, none of that. It is all self-evident and expression of some kind of shared essence, self-evident essence, and this is how we generate literature and culture and all this. And so I prefer this complex and difficult as it is, right? Sort of stepping away from this essentialist simple-mindedness, right? It's hard work, particularly in simple-minded, like America, monocultural uh, or monolinguistic, um, dominated by single language cultures. It's not a monolingual culture. I prefer this complexity, but it's really, one gets tired, right? In various ways. And so um, I'm not giving up obviously, but it's it, at some point, I don't really care if people understand. The book that I'm writing now, <laughs> finishing now, it, the character is multilingual and uses or thinks in a lot of languages simultaneously. And I do not even, I don't want to italicize those different languages, let alone translate or explain. Uh, yeah, I'm going to come back to that because one of the characters in your book is also speaking Ladino, which is a language I think you mentioned something like 35 people uh, speak today, um, a language bought, brought to Bosnia by the um, diaspora of Sephardic Jews from Portugal. Um, but I, I'm glad you also brought up uh, the sort of fantasies of nationalistic identity as defined through essential selves who are usually one ethnicity and, and speak one language and live on sort of standard gender norms. Um, because in the recent years, my uh, own experience has been that uh, people who have lived through um, political ruptures, if not civil wars, have had, had a far better ear to the rise of these nationalistic fantasies than those who did not. But perhaps I was wrong. Perhaps I was, what was really happening is that people who lived in um, multiple languages from countries which also had ruptures had a better ear to the precursors to these um, movements, which begin to some degree linguistically. Mm -hmm. And Yakuta, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that because there's, there's no shortage of, uh, of those nationalistic fantasies um, at work and have been at work for a long time in France. And I wonder if, if you've sensed those linguistic reverberations earlier or if I'm off base in, in sort of posing the question that way. The thing with those things is that you can never be quite sure whether you really, you fear them or you see them coming. You know, you never know if, is it really what I think this is? Can it really be? Or is it just me being traumatized to some extent by something my family has had to live through? Um, it works both ways again. And Sasha was right, very right in saying that it's a lot of work because in the end, the burden of interpretation um, lies on you. You're the one constantly 
has to sift through whatever you hear and decide this is this is ominous this isn't this is uh, xenophobic this isn't and i'm not just talking about you know the the nationalistic the political nationalistic fantasies i'm talking about everyday interactions you know oh what kind of a name is this oh where are you from how do you when you're you know french born as i am how do you answer that question what, oh where are you from and people you know that don't mean it sometimes, they don't mean it in a bad spirited way, but um, it takes some form of first-hand experience to be able to say, oh, where's the name from? And, you know, for instance, dissociate the person and the name and things like that. So those are things I think um, we've had to, to deal with. And another thing, just going back to what Lana said uh, about the, you know, the, the, the brain freeze and the moments when, you know, you're just suddenly at a loss for, for everything. In situations when I'm surprised or angry, for instance, when someone, you know, a couple of weeks ago, someone tried, you know, was pulling at my, trying to pick my pocket and trying to get my phone out of my pocket. I was in Paris. It was, he was French. Um, everyone was French. And the first thing that came to me was Bosnian. And it's so strange. That's extremely strange. But you, re you replied to the pickpocket in, in Bosnian. Yeah, I yelled at something extremely, you know, <laughs> offensive. It, it's easier for me to be offensive in Bosnian or in English for that matter than it yeah. is um, to be so in French. Because in French, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm fully entirely aware of the, the weight the words carry. In the other two languages, it's more of a, I'm, I'm playing with it. The question for both Yakuta and Sasha, what about I love you? To yeah. me, it's extremely easy to say it in English. I feel I could say it to anyone. What about saying that in Bosnian? <laughs> I love you is commonly used in movies and songs in English, right? In ways that, um, I, I, when I remember, it perceived not as more real, but it was so common that it seems that it was easier to say it in English than it was in Bosnian. But it's also, it's more abstract because I didn't have to tell my parents, I love you in the morning, right? I do say it to my kids and they say it to me because we sort of culturally trained to, to use this phrase. But if you live with your parents until you're 27, <laughs> as I did, then I love you. You know, we don't say that to each other. We just, you know, live together and, and do not hate each other. That's plenty. And, <laughs> That's extremely English and more than, you know, Anglophone, it's American. And, you know, there's always yeah. these scenes in movies. It's, I love you, dad. I love you, son. And, and yeah. you know, I don't think anyone else does that, to be honest. So it's been devaluated through usage. In my my in-laws say, I love you to me. That is just unthinkable in Boston. <laughs> it's also true that my, you know, aunts and uncles say, I love you. But it's also true that my aunts, and I had a lot of aunts, um, when I would go to see them, they would squeeze my face like this and kiss me on the mouth, right? You don't need to say I love you after that. It just, it just wipe your face from saliva. I love you is super, superfluous in that situation entirely. And there's also, yeah, and uh, what, what about I miss you? Which, you know, in French, it's, the, it's, re it's reverted. It's tu me manque, is the yeah. person who you miss, who's the subject of the action, is almost like it's your fault, you know? 
It's not, you've done something to the person and now they miss you. <laughs> you're missing to me. So if you, if you, it is idiomatically, um, you place yourself at the center of missing. Um, yeah, there, there is a lack of you. Yeah. There is a lack of you, Falish. yes. Yes. Falish. Yeah. Falish. Um, but it was interesting um, what you were saying, uh, Sasha, about this essentialism. And I can see it uh, coming back in, in the political discourse in Bosnia um, recently. Um, and it just uh, it, it just goes hand in hand with what Danilo Kish was saying, that nationalism is always a form of paranoia. And you can see how this paranoia enters language and, and official you know, linguistic policies um, in terms of we have to preserve this. And whenever nationalism and essentialism enters, there's this, this fight to keep language almost dead in a museum and not let it change in any way to control it. Because, of course, once you control language, you control everything else. And I can see how problematic that is in Bosnia, where, you know, you have all these different nationalities, ethnicities. We speak in this language that could be called many, many names. We use different vocabulary that belongs both to Croatia, Serbia, Montenegro, etc. So it's very hard to put it into one one category. Uh, but I personally have had problems using one word or another uh, and then being marked for that word because I, I took the language out of the museum. I took it into the street. Um, and I even nowadays, when I go to Zagreb, where I was born, um, with all this need to differentiate Croatian from Serbian or Bosnian and, and this, you know, policy of inventing new words that are hyper Slavic. They don't want to even use Latin. It's not purely Croatian. Um, I found myself at a notary's office and I didn't know the word for a photocopy, which used to be photocopia. <laughs> and they invented this, this Slavic word that now they call preslika, which is like an <laughs> over image. Yeah. <laughs> and I was there at the notary's office and I didn't know what this woman was saying to me. And I, I thought, oh, my God, this is we can no longer communicate. This is what you get when you want to yes. you know, keep that, language pure. That's absolutely fascinating to me. That's one of the, the reasons it's probably it's bound to become harder and harder to be a Bosnian speaker for me with my particular brand of Bosnian um, in the in the Balkans. But I'm so. Um, appalled at how you can artificially have languages move away from one another and 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 gradually 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 you have nothing left to say to each other but it's normal you know that's what happened um, to some extent to french canadians or to louisiana with french speakers um, but that was distance and time and this is sort of you know lab grown <laughs> <laughs> and it's a it's an experiment in in miscommunication in a way well it happened in scandinavia too and the region was a dialect of yes. danish up to a point or, or swedish right and so it's overlapping but it's a mm -hmm. condition of nation state to own the language and own the culture that is self-evidently distinct from all the others particularly the language but of course we know and this is what lana was saying uh, is absolutely right is that there are all these layers to the South uh, Slavic languages of the Balkans and Bosnia in particular, that not only there be all these idioms and dialects, right, that are that had not, they were standardized in Yugoslavia, Serbo-Croatian, right, but that standard was blown up and then the national nations, new nation states, instead of 
insisted on differentiating languages from one another, right? Mm -hmm. And so they had to insist on small differences. It's the narcissism of small differences, as they say, right? But the grammar works exactly the same, the case system, the verb system, everything, everything. And so you find a new, you know, word for photocop. I'm a member of a sovereign nation now because I don't say photocop. <laughs> because I don't <laughs> And so, I mean, it's, it's silly at, at its face and its depth. But I also want to say that in Bosnia, in those languages, you have layers of history, right? Alana was mentioning the German words, right? There's a layer of words in Bosnia, the sort of simple technologies that the Austro-Hungarians brought to Bosnia, right? The rice specialist is still the word for zipper, right? And schraftzieger mm -hmm. is the word for screwdriver. Before that, I don't know how they screwed things, but uh, what the word was, but then it was a schraftzieger. And so similar with, with Turkish words, because Baza was under Turkish uh, Ottoman occupation for a long time, and now English, right? And English and other languages too, but English predominantly. But the diaspora is bringing that into the context, the Bosnian. And I remember when Lana was talking for a while, I don't know if it's still the case, but in the 90s, you could get several kinds of coffee in Syria. We can get, you know, the Bosnian coffee, and then you can get espresso, and then you could get diaspora, right? So diaspora was drip coffee. So a waiter in a cafe said, give me two espressos in a diaspora. <laughs> because diaspora wanted drip coffee, which we never had before. And I think it's been eliminated because it's not drip coffee since then. So the languages, as writers know this, multilingual diasporic writers, by necessity, know it. It's a constantly changing organism, right? And the fantasy, the nationalist fantasy of the pure language is totally unsustainable, even as a fantasy, never mind as a reality because people live in language and they speak it. Even if you monolingual as a writer, it, it is the job of the writer to continuously create language. And so diasporic writers, they create language, but bringing, uh, serving as channels of communication. I mean, not everyone has to do it or does it, but this is the, the opportunity to serve as a conduit um, of exchange between languages, to be a space of overlapping between languages and, and translating idioms from one language to another. I wonder if, if Lana, Sasha, uh, Yakupta, if, if you find yourselves creating the frame for a, a book or a story that basically preserves this liminal space. I, I ask this particularly because Yakupta's most recent book just won the Pre Medici de, de, de la Essay. And it's about spending on the night in the in the the Louvre. You know, it feels very metaphorical for a writer in between languages to spend the night, um, kind of in a liminal space at a museum. Uh, Yakuta, you seek out and curate these these spaces. Do you find that you do that on purpose, or is that just something that you keep doing? So little by little, I've inched towards that space, which is, I think, my space, um, literally speaking. The, the liminal spaces, the in-between spaces where you, you can be fully comfortable, but it's okay because there's always something going on, you know. <laughs> um, and, the, and the experience at the Louvre, yes, it was an extremely, you know, concrete and literal experience for me because I did get to spend the night um, in the Louvre. Um, and the Louvre is the place my dad took me when I was a kid because my dad reinvented himself in France um, he was studying economics in Belgrade. He hated it. Um, he went to architecture, architecture school in France. He became interested in the arts. He took me, his only daughter, to the Louvre. And he kept asking me 
And it was so much fun, this question. I mean, so much fun. It kept asking me how I would go about to steal the Mona Lisa. That was our thing. It's like, how would you, you know, and we would, you know, make up crazy plans and, you know, and try and assess uh, the possibilities. But deep down, it's not that funny a question, really. Deep down, it truly says something about how illegitimate you can feel in those places, in those patrimonial, you know, um, institutions. And there's a twist in the sort of a, a twist in this in this new book because I go there wanting to find a proper answer to my father's question, but then I end up not taking something out of the Louvre, but taking something in, bringing something in that's not supposed to be there. And of course, and of course, I couldn't have written it had I realized that it's completely metaphorical of the way I use French. Uh, I couldn't have written it. But then it's, it's exactly that, it's exactly what Sash was saying, um, which I find so profoundly true and moving, is what can I bring to this language? What can I bring to this place that, you know, sort of maybe wants me, maybe doesn't want me, probably is indifferent in most cases to me. I have to, I have to find my, my own way into the place. So it does involve a bit of, you know, of, adjusting, adapting, making do, but what can I bring to it? How can I take it to another level? Because that's my job now, in a way. If, you know, if I'm serious about writing in French and my parents are recent immigrants, um, what's my, what, what can I bring to the table? And that's something I very much love about the English language. It's so sup supple and flexible and welcoming in a way for other idioms. Uh, it has this quality of, you know, being energetic, being, making sense. French is much more classical. I love it deeply, but it's very hard to make something up in French, to invent something new at, um, at phrases sentence. I do it at phrases level, at sentence level, sorry. I do it sometimes, but it's sometimes perceived as um, something I brought back, not from, not from the Balkans, not from Bosnia, but from the United States. Yeah. I, I once wrote in my first novel, I wrote about a woman that she, I wrote this in French, but it, in English, it makes sense. It's she out Monroe, um, Marilyn Monroe. And it doesn't work in French the same way. It's completely new and very strange in French, which is a virtue of being new. But, which for me came from, from English. And this very strange thing happened to me the, the other day, and I, I would love to have your, your take on this, um, Sasha and Lana, because I was, I was doing a presentation in a, in, a, in a bookstore and it was lovely. And I'm also a translator, I translate from English into French. And this woman comes after the presentation and everything, and she's, you know, in the conversation, she mentions her daughter is also a translator. And then she looks at me and I don't know, maybe I'm making the, the suspicious look up, but she looks at me suspiciously and says, well, you know, by contract, you can only translate into your mother tongue. You're not allowed to translate into another language than your mother tongue. And I was, I was at a loss because I'd spent an hour talking about how I'm not sure what my mother tongue is at this point anymore. You know, what do you mean by mother tongue? And so she was looking and I was, by contract, do you mean, that I you know, haven't read my contracts all this while, or I'm sort of an interloper or something. Um, 
And then, you know, I gradually came to realize that her daughter was indeed a translator, but she was translating, you know, nuclear briefs for nuclear plants and, and, and you know, and probably classified information. And that, that probably has to do with the sensitive nature of the material she has to translate. But I'm still not quite sure, and I would love to know what you guys think. Well, I think in a kind of a nationalist mind, which is goes much deeper than you know the rhetoric of politicians or outspoken nationalists, um, being bilingual and bicultural makes you perpetually suspicious because your loyalty is questionable, right? Which nation are you loyal to, right? What are you going? Are you willing to die for this nation and that nation? Are you spying for the other nation, right? Why are you here and where are you from, right? That's and, and everyone keeps telling me you'd be a perfect spy. I'm sure you're a spy. Aren't you a spy? And of course, no one would want me as a spy. <laughs> no nation would want me. I, my first published story in English was about a spy for the, <laughs> exactly that reason. And I was, I, in various interviews, I offered my services as a spy <laughs> to whoever was willing to pay. And that didn't work out because I guess I should not have said it publicly. But, uh, but I think the spy metaphor or analogies is very apt because if you are because i think in it's not it's nationalist by extension it's not doesn't have to be invested in national mythology right but if you think that um, there's an essence of a person that is a, a very simple essentially simple right and that what you do in life is expressing that essence right and then you have to find a way to do it and the best way to do it or the easiest medium is your native language because it's your mother tongue and you're in that culture and so on right and so this is what I meant when I thought in nationalist imagination, people are self-evident, right? If you were self-evident as a French person, you wouldn't be asked those questions. But, you know, the name and the, your ambiguities about, I'm sorry to interpret the situation, but your ambiguities about mother tongue and all that, well, you know, we don't know about you, right? You, you will not let you translate documents for nuclear plants, right? Because you are suspicious. And whereas to my mind, generally, and it's, this is I learned by way of being diaspora, I think, is that there are all these layers and there are all these potentialities inside me and everyone else, and that those find different expressions in different registers of the same language, never mind different languages, which also means that there's no essence because to some necessary extent it is performative, right? Mm -hmm. So that I'm American English, but in Bosnia, I'm Bosnia, and I contain both simultaneously in my head. That was John Freeman, Jakuta Alikovazovic, Lana Bostasic, and Alexander Heyman in a conversation that took place at Portland Book Festival in November 2021. The 2022 Portland Book Festival is on November 5th in downtown Portland. More info at literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>